That's great. Uh, the last thing I'll tell you about is November 12th is our men's breakfast. And if you're a dude, you are welcome to come to that. I don't care what age dude you are. You can be like Gavin right there in the back. And he's like one, just like just turned one. Or you can be like 101, but even older than that, if you know anybody like that. But anyway. Call the Guinness Book of World Records. But you, come uh, hang out with the other guys. The, the, the point of these men's breakfasts is we're trying to connect guys to one another and help them learn how to live out on mission, uh, connect them into gospel communities, connect them with one another, and make sure that we're always talking about mission and sending people out. And we want you guys to be able to be a part of that. And in the midst of all that, we're also eventually, they're going to do some things that involve your families and your friends and trying to connect all those things by sending you all out and connecting you all together. Hopefully, it'll be pretty cool. So, 8 a.m., November 12th, show up. We're going to have breakfast. If you don't eat breakfast, show up anyway and watch everybody else eat breakfast. If you don't like it, you can hop in your car and leave. See? It all works. It all works. I was looking at the communion tables today, and the first service, I go, I was like, there's like a million pieces of paper, and my brother goes, a million? And I'm like, really? I'm going to get heckled for this. Really? There's a lot of pieces of paper on the communion tables. If, if you are newer or newer, there are actually Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. Please take one. If you forgot one, you can use one. But on the communion tables, there are these sermon notes. That's one of the pieces of paper that are on there. And in there, you can go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about with some questions that kind of go deeper into that. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live, and then Events in Uversion. You will get uh, sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Mark chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what is actually easier to say. And that we would live in the truth of the forgiveness and the grace that you have given to us. That you would get great glory by how we live our lives in the hope that you have provided. And that people would know you because of how your children love you. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing a short series. And when I say a short I know some people say a short series. They're like three weeks. My short series is ten. You're welcome. So it works. Uh, we're going to do this right before uh, Christmas. It's going to go all the way up into Christmas. And these are about certain things in the Bible that I read and give me a little bit of pause. I'm like, hmm, that, that's interesting. Because I think if it gives me pause, it might make you question as well. So to satiate my curiosity, I'm answering my what in the world questions with you. Now, you also get the opportunity on the communion tables. There are three by five cards on those. You can write down your what in the world Bible questions if you are so inclined. And next summer, we'll come back and answer those questions. Also, on the back of your sermon notes is a little QR code right there. If you have a QR reader on your smartphone, you can scan that. It'll take you to a web page, and you can type in your question right there. So if I get really boring, you can do Why is Aaron so boring? Don't do that one. I would just, my self-esteem would plummet, and I wouldn't know what to do. Actually, I'd, I'd like, delete it and be like, whatever, get a life. <laughs> I'm funny. Right. So, so write your question there. Next summer, we'll come back. We'll answer your what in the world questions. It'll be kind of fun. Hopefully, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. 
Today's a story I had questions about when I first started following Jesus. I don't really have many more, but I thought it'd be good for me to answer them with you. We're going to look at how Jesus heals a paralyzed man by first saying, your sins are forgiven. When he says that, the people go, what in the world? And he explains more in Mark 2, 10 and 11 and says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. I was talking to one of my friends, Judy Lees, a few weeks ago uh, about a question that her dad asked her, and it kind of all relates into this. And that is, you know, why did Jesus have to die for our sins if he could just say, you're forgiven, like he did to this guy right here? Couldn't he just say to all of humanity, oh, you're forgiven, and then he didn't have to go to the cross? You know, we could all be like that paralyzed guy, so why doesn't Jesus just do that? Great question. I had that question for a while, and then I kind of got closer to understanding the gospel and Jesus' mission and things like that. And so my job today is to help you not to labor under a false assumption and to grow much faster than I did. So you're welcome. You can be smarter than me, which isn't that hard to do. So we're going to walk through this. Uh, we're going to walk through it in the normal way that people talk about it, and then we're going to deal with it specifically with that question of the forgiveness of sins. So you kind of get two messages today. Go you. It'll be amazing. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And when it says at home, that doesn't necessarily mean his home. This is his home base. And so he could have been staying with somebody, uh, could have been a benefactor helping take care of him as he did his public ministry, but it doesn't necessarily mean his literal house. And many were gathered, gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus' ministry, it's taking off lots of people are coming and following and listening and he comes to his home base and what does he do he still preaches the word of god because he wants people to grow verse three says and they came and i love that because it sounds like who are they it sounds so ominous they came like the irs the zombies the walking dead starts tonight the aliens you know who who are they the they are some guys who have a friend who is paralyzed and they know that with all the rumors they heard about Jesus, that Jesus is healing people. And so they want to take their buddy to go see Jesus. Now, I'm going to call the paralyzed guy Joe, just because it helps us understand, I don't know, I like the word Joe, so he, he's going to be Joe today. And so they probably had a conversation like this, let's go see Jesus, but we just can't go. Let's take Joe to go see Jesus, because if everything we hear about Jesus is true, Joe might actually get healed. Verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, there are a few things I think that get overlooked in a passage like this. In this culture, these guys, they are Joe's friends. And doing that takes a lot of guts because friendship doesn't happen by accident, especially with someone in this physical condition. Odds are against friendship with people who are paralyzed. Even in our day, how do we treat people who have physical disabilities? A lot of times, not well, not because we don't mean to, we just don't know how. They did this study where they asked a bunch of people with physical disabilities, what is the greatest challenge that you face? And they said, the greatest obstacle we have is the attitudes of normal people. Not in the sense of that they feel like victims or people are holding them down, it's that normal people don't normally know how to respond to them. And so sometimes they come off as being unkind. Uh, they look away, avoid meeting their eyes. It's hard for them, again, to develop friendships because a lot of times we're not, we don't know how to be gracious in the midst of some of these situations. The ancient culture, it was even worse. Greeks regularly disposed of newborns with physical abnormalities. Uh, Aristotle, who my philosophy instructor, I said, oh, Aristotle, he, not a Christian, by the way. He, he goes, Aristotle, he's, he's such a forward thinker. Aristotle said this, quickly kill a deformed child. 
Oh, great. That's wonderful. In Israel, you know, they, though they valued life, they still had this stigma that was attached to them. Uh, John 9, Jesus is walking by this guy who's blind from birth, and his disciples see it, and they go, oh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's like, that's the stigma in that culture. Jesus said, neither one of them, stop being weirdos, knock it off. But sometimes today we still have that same feeling in regard to that. You know, the, the amazing thing in this culture is that Joe had friends. And not really just any friends. These are friends who would overcome social boundaries and obstacles and inconvenience. They give it their time. They give it their energy to be friends. I think it's got to offer a lot of encouragement for, for Joe to have these guys around him because friends are supposed to do that. I think Joe probably has hope because his friends have hope for him. I think he's got the best gospel community of all time. It's like Joe and the boys. I don't know, that's what I call it. So the the whole story takes place in the scripture because his friends say, we're going to take Joe to go see Jesus. And Joe is going to get healed and forgiven while there. And this whole thing's happening because he has friends that have hope for him, even maybe sometimes when Joe runs out of hope for himself. Verse 4, And when they could not get near him, that's Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, if you don't know this, if you try and do anything, you take a paralyzed guy along with you, it gets harder to do that thing. I mean, you may have kids and think, man, taking my kids somewhere. But here, in this day, there's no handicap access ramps. There's no handicap parking. There's no handicap anything, obviously. So in this house where Jesus is speaking and doing this stuff, we had a modern fire marshal. They would go crazy. They'd be like, no three-foot aisles. There's no wheelchair access. What if there's a fire? I don't know. What are we going to do? You know, we'll figure it out because for a long time we figured it out without you. So, (laughs) ah, okay. So his his friends are on it, you know, because they're going to go pick up Joe. We're taking this because friends do that. They serve each other, so they probably like, hey, Joe, we're going to pick you up, literally. At 9 a.m., we're going to take you to go see Jesus. And so they get there late because it takes time with Joe and their dudes. And everywhere dudes go, they tend to be a little bit late. And so, you know, they probably could have asked somebody to put a purse on a chair or a jacket or a Bible or something. But again, they're dudes. They don't think about those things. And so they're shut outside of where Jesus is is speaking. And so they have this brainstorm. How are we going to get in? And at one point, one of them probably says, hey, let's go up and lower him through the roof. Don't do that at my house, okay? And and then the guys are like, shut up. But no one's got a better idea. So like, okay, let's go for it. Now, this is what these houses look like. These are called insulas. So this is the middle of a neighborhood. Here's another picture of just like one of these houses if you took it out of the neighborhood. So these are these staircases that go up onto the roof so you can get on top and get on top of the roof like that. And so they get there late, and what they do is they're going to pull apart this roof to let their buddy down. And so imagine you're there, you got there early enough to get a seat, and all of a sudden this roof starts coming apart, and you're like, why can't these guys get their act together? What, what are they doing? What if you own the house? You're like, what are you freaks doing to my house? What do you stop it? You know, this is commotion, thatch roofs being torn away, pieces probably falling on Jesus in the midst of all this. And by the time they pull it away, I'm sure it's really quiet. And everyone's like, what's going to happen? And then what you see is, free, free, free. <laughs> and here comes Joe, right? Right, right through the roof. It's kind of cool, right? <laughs> Forget, don't do this at my house. I mean, it's, it's kind of like whenever God shows up in the Bible, something ha- like Moses' shrubs get scorched, and here you lose your roof. So, 
whatever. whatever. But they're going to have a great story to tell because we can tell it too. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So th- there it is. And Jesus just says, usually Jesus says to people, your faith has healed you. But here what he does is he sees his friend's faith and love and hope for Joe. He saw their faith by what they actually did. And this is really what faith is. It's our beliefs about Jesus being put into action. So what does Jesus see? He sees this irrational commitment of these guys to one of their friends. I think he sees what he made man to be in the first place, how they were supposed to interact with one another, how they were supposed to love one another. He sees their faith. Just like today, if you come to baptisms, you will get to see this lived out, this idea of my faith being lived out by what I do. I think Jesus has compassion, and when he looks at Joe, he sees not just this broken body, but he sees a broken and fallen soul. And he says, so son your sins are forgiven now if you're joe you're probably laying on this mat going i did not come here to get my sins talked about i came here to get healed i don't want to talk about my sins but this is what really happens in god-centered community sin surfaces things get talked about a lot of people don't like living in gospel-centered community because they don't like those deep conversations they want to run away from those and if you run away from them you will never have true gospel-centered community But here, when Jesus starts talking about this, the sins are going to get dealt with. That's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be able to deal with that with each other. In reality, I think Jesus is fulfilling this guy's friend's deepest desires as well. Because when you love Jesus, your deepest desire is to see your friends come and love Jesus too. Like, I remember when my brother was baptized, I still get teary-eyed over it. Anytime my family gets together and he prays, I'm like, (laughs) I just... not because I'm a crybaby, but th- that's how it is with me. I, I, I get really emotional about that. In the book Becoming Friends, Paul Waddell writes this. He says, In a spiritual friendship, the principal good is a mutual love for Christ and a desire to grow together in Christ. This is what distinguishes spiritual friendships from other relationships. I mean, you can think about this. In this culture, Joe had probably been mocked and judged his entire life because of his physical condition. And Jesus says in front of everybody, You are clean, you are healed, you are restored, you are right with God. And Joe probably does have a lot of sins. And you might think, well, what kind of sins can a paralyzed guy commit? Well, I think a lot of the worst kinds, like bitterness and arrogance and lovelessness and the whole idea of losing hope in who God has called him to be, all these things happen without ever raising a finger. They're inside. Bitterness has a way that it eats us up from the inside out. And if you could, you could probably tell a lot about who people are by if you could figure out what they're actually thinking in their heads. Like if you look at a mom, a mom is usually thinking about her kids and what's going on with that. Average 18-year-old hormone-filled guy, what's he thinking about? Right? Average guy on his honeymoon night, what's he thinking about? Average 80-year-old guy, what's he thinking about? It's correlation. Okay, it's all. <laughs> Again. I relate to everything. We're thinking about the wrong things. We've got to think about where we're going. But you think about Joe. What, what's, what's he thinking about? He's probably really irritated, right? I'm, I'm on this mat. I'm paralyzed. I can't get up. Why did God do this to me? Why did God bring this circumstance into my life? I cannot believe what is God. And that's probably the things that are going through his head, and that's probably what Jesus sees. But then you take a bigger picture of it, and you think, well, what does God think about What does God think about? I know God's omniscient and God knows all, but what does God think about? Well, Jesus says that what God thinks about is he thinks about his people. Not in the sense that people are the center of God's universe. We are not the center of God's universe. God's glory is the center of God's universe and who he is. That's why he loves us. But Jesus does tell you that God's mind moves towards his people like a shepherd looks for lost sheep. 
or like a woman looks for a lost coin. And that should, should inspire hope because we are those lost things. And God has come to seek us out. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes who are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Literally, this is why are you thinking these things. The teachers of the law were thought of like the big guns. They knew everything about theology. They're the ones who really loved God. But who did they bring to Jesus? Nobody. Nobody. You got the specialist in the law, full of religious etiquette. They didn't bring one person they cared about enough to Jesus. And yet you got these other four guys who break through a roof and do anything for their friend. And I think it shows you that there is a connection between loving God and loving people. I think it is, is impossible in our lives to share the heart of God without sharing a heart for people around us. And I think it's also cautionary for us because the longer that we follow Jesus, if you do follow Jesus, and the more your life gets cleaned up, the closer you are to knowing God's ways in your life, the more judgmental we have a tendency to become. We have to be really careful because we'll look around and say, well, I can't hang out with those people. Uh, they're smokers. Or I can hang out with those people because they swear. Or I can't hang out with those people because they're from the wrong political party. And I can't hang out with those people because they drink. And I can't hang out with those people because they like country music. That might be true. But, uh, you know. The scriptures continually point to the fact that, that the more that we are really growing to love and follow and serve Jesus, the more that we are drawn to understand that the gospel is supposed to exemplify mercy and grace, and we are to be those people who speak and live out that gospel in our lives. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone loves, says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Strong words. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Jesus makes this point. People who don't love people can't love God. Just like if you don't know multiplication, you can't do algebra. Jesus tells us that love is the expression of all of the law. It's why it's all fulfilled in who he is. And that gets to my next point, but we'll get there in a second. The teachers of the law had no love for the paralyzed guy. They're, they just sat back and grumbled and complained. So verse 9, Jesus says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? No answer, so Jesus continues, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So Joe's body begins to be healed. He shifts on his mat. He stands up. His body is healed, but also his soul and his heart. At this moment, at this time, Joe is the most physically, relationally, and spiritually healthy person in the room. That guy right there. And when you look at the story, I think there's a bunch of different things you can look at it with. You can talk about friendship. When you see a discouraged friend, send a note, make a phone call, check in on them. It's about community. When somebody needs time to talk, you take time and listen. You hang out together. You develop relationships with one another. It's about bursting through barriers and people erect walls and they don't want to hang out with them. You kind of burst through those walls and you climb through their roof and you get into their lives so that you can actually bust those barriers. It's about loving people enough to bring them to Jesus and not dropping them when you're lowering them through the roof. Uh, It's about hope in Jesus that he is the savior of men's souls, that he notices our dilemmas. It's about healing that God can heal. Sometimes he chooses to, sometimes he doesn't, but we've got to trust him in all circumstances. And all of those things are sermons that I have heard about this section of scripture. I've probably heard this thing preached a million times. (laughs) I know not that many, but close, right? And, And everybody preaches those things on it. But do you notice what Jesus keeps coming back to in these verses? 
he keeps talking about forgiveness of sin. The whole passage is about forgiving sins. More importantly, Jesus having the power to forgive sins. The word forgiver, forgiven takes place four times in those 12 verses. All the tension in the passage, it's not about Jesus healing the guy. It's about Jesus' assumption of the right to forgive sins. And the scribes want to challenge that. And if you notice, Jesus doesn't give Joe what his friends brought him there for in the first place. He doesn't just heal him and send him off. It's like Jesus ignores all their roof-shattering theatrics. Jesus looks at Joe and sees his inward state. He sees his soul, and he's going to do for him what everyone needs done for them. He's going to forgive his sins. I think Jesus, the text doesn't say this, but I think Jesus sees in Joe repentance because he says your sins are forgiven, which leads people to say, well, why can Jesus just forgive all of our sins the way he did for Joe? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? He wouldn't have had to die if he just used the magic forgiveness words. What in the world is up with that? So let me quickly walk with you how the guy was forgiven and why he was forgiven and God's promise of atonement for those who believe. So we're going to go with this. Okay, so it uh, starts like this. Our first parents, okay, what they do, at the beginning of humanity, they believe they knew better than God and they rebel and sin against God. And since that time, it is in our nature to be evil. And when I say the word evil, I don't mean like Dr. Evil, $37 billion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that we are a self-centered people. Everything is about us. We get offended so easy. We can't believe that someone would say that to us, drive like that, cut us off. To, how dare they do that? We, I mean, we love taking selfies. Click. We are all about ourselves. We are a self-centered culture. If you have a kid growing up, you don't have to teach them how to disobey you. They just, oh, son, you obeyed me again. What's wrong with you? They naturally disobey you. That's what we do because we are evil. We've got to own that word. I mean, sometimes people come in and they want to talk to me. Oh, I need to talk to you about myself. I'm like, okay. And they're like, and somebody did this. Somebody, I'm like, no. What you've got to get down to this idea is that you are evil. You've got to own it. That's the best way to start a counseling session. You're evil. No, 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 no. See, today there's this whole push that people are born good. And, and the scripture says we're not. We are born into sin. If we think that we are actually born good, then anytime something happens in our lives that is sin, we can blame it on something else. Oh, something was done to me because I'm inherently good. But if we own the fact that we are born into sin, then when these things happen, we have to own that sin as being something that we have done. We are evil. That's how it starts. Relationship with God has been broken. So what God does is he comes to a guy named Abraham. And he's going to begin to restore relationship with humanity again. And so God promises to bless Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing to the entire earth. Galatians 3.14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So even the promise given to Abraham thousands of years ago, it's all about Jesus. On earth today, over one billion people claim the name of Jesus, and it starts with, Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, and they trusted God. Jesus eventually comes through Abraham's line as that promise of God, and all nations are blessed through him. So after a few years, Abraham still hasn't had a kid, and he's like, God, what's gonna, you promised I would have a kid that would lead to a son, to a son, to a son, to your son one day. And so what, what's happening with this? How, how do I know that this is still going to happen? And so in Genesis 15, God pledges to Abraham and to us to save us, to offer us redemption and restoration and salvation by establishing this thing called a covenant. 
a covenant. Now, the word covenant is all about relationship. Now, we don't understand covenant because we're a world that loves our contracts and our warranties. I, my TV got busted. I called them. I got a warranty because I don't trust anybody, right? So we don't, we don't trust people. But in a covenant, one person pledges themselves to another by a visible decree. So in Genesis 15, Abraham does this sacrifice. And there's all these animals and these, it's just a bloody mess. And what God does is he comes and he walks among the pieces of this sacrifice of these animals as a visible decree. God in Genesis 15 commits himself to save his people as representative by Abraham's sacrifice of these animals. And God says, I will fulfill what I said, saving people, blessing you to be a blessing, even if it takes me being, being sacrificed just like these animals. And that is exactly what happened. You know, God is foreshadowing the death of Christ. You talk about why do you have that whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament? It is all there to show what God would do to reach and to save his people. God commits himself to death, not because we are so good, not because God can't live without us, but because God is that good. And that is extraordinary. The promise is, you will get a son that leads to a son that leads to a son that eventually leads to my son, Jesus. Abraham says, how can I be sure? God says, I will commit myself to death to make it happen. And years later, Jesus becomes a man and dies a bloody, brutal death to bring about the terms of the covenant given to Abraham to bless all nations of the earth. It's crazy. So why did Jesus have to die? Because we brought sin and death and separation into the world. We have bound ourselves to sin with ties of blood so deep in our souls that we cannot break those chains. God says, you sin, you die. That's just how it is. And it's true. And it's true. But God promises a Redeemer to save and restore us. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. People say, oh, well, why the shedding of blood? Do you understand when someone offends you, you're like, I want them to pay. How dare somebody hurt me? What God does is he takes that upon himself. Upon himself. Jesus dies in our place as our perfect lamb. That is the language of love and restoration and reconciliation. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation, it means taking away our sins as well as making us in right relationship again with God. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 12, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who's the transgressors? We are. We are. We are. Jesus is God. He becomes a man, lives without sin. Though he was in every way that we are, he did not sin. And this is why Jesus alone can reconcile a holy God to a sinful people. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In Christianity, there is nothing more important than the death and the life of Jesus. Cross and the atonement. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life, there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no relationship with God, and there is no relationship with one another ever again. And this is what is happening when Jesus asks the question, which is easier to say to this guy, rise and take your bed and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? Which is easier to say? 
It's a trick question because we today would say, oh, it's easier, easier to say your sins are forgiven because I just, you just say those magic words. Oh, it doesn't mean anything. No, Jesus, by saying those words, knows exactly what he is promising. He is promising to be the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. He understands that by saying those words, it's going to cost him his life. It is much easier to say, pick up your bed and walk, because then Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. The reason that forgiveness is possible because the work Christ would do on the cross for Joe and for us, the cost of forgiveness is Jesus' life. And I think it's interesting that Jesus forgives Joe before he heals him because he's showing what Joe's greater need actually is. And it's our greater need as well. So often we want all these things in our lives, but we must understand that our greatest need is half the time a need we can't even articulate. It's a need for hope and restoration and redemption. And Joe probably couldn't articulate that, but it shows that we don't have to have it all together to follow Jesus and be saved. I think it's important for us to understand, more importantly, our need. And that all we need is nothing but him. Tim Keller writes this. He says, It takes only great power to heal a man physically, but it will require infinite suffering, death, and astonishing love for Jesus to be able to forgive us. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, arise, take your bed, and walk. By Jesus saying that, it puts everybody directly in the shadow of the cross. And Jesus offers to heal us from the only disease that could ever permanently and finally kill us, which is sin. The problem is we can never pay for our own sin because our lives, our blood, we are tainted by our own sin. What is taught through Scripture is clear. Either you die forever separated from God or you trust in God's provision through His Son who has died for you. Your death for His life. Your sin for His righteousness. Martin Luther called this the great exchange that our God in covenant would come and exchange our lives for his. Why did Jesus have to die? Because we're evil. Just own it. Right? $37 million. We, we're evil. That's what we are. We, we've got we to own that. And the cost of sin is death. But Jesus died because he is that good. And he is the only hope that we have ever had. Our God sought us. Our God bought us with himself. And, that, and we don't live in despair. We don't think, oh, I'm so evil and horrible. God had to die. No, it's meant to give you hope. That your God loved you enough to seek you out to do this. It's meant to help us to live in joy. That God sought us out to love us and to buy us back from our sin. To break those chains that we had made ourselves. And to bring us back home again. Our God is good. Our God is good. And I think that we have to understand that as well. That when we look at other people... I think it's really hard in our lives to forgive people of their sins against us. You know, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to actually forgive somebody when they hurt you? I mean, we have to understand that our God is the one who has first forgiven us and sent out, us out on a mission of reconciliation. He calls us to be his ambassadors to the world. What does that mean? We live like Jesus did. We forgive like Jesus did. We, we restore relationships like Jesus did. Jesus goes to the cross to heal our greatest wound so that we all can be in relationship with God again because our God is that good. This is why we go to communion every week. Communion reminds you of this promise of Jesus, of what he did to fulfill the terms of that covenant. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. 
to fulfill the terms of the covenant that God is restoring relationship with mankind. It is God who extends himself first. It is God who first loves us. It is God who first blesses us. It is God who first seeks us. It is God who does all of these things. And we as a people live in humility and joy because our great God is that good. The man's going to come up. As they do, you want to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, uh, if you're in a place today where you're kind of wondering, you know, some question about, well, how and do I get my sins forgiven? And why don't I get my sins forgiven? They'd love to talk to you about that to understand the, the depth of what sin has done to all of us and how our God has come to rescue and set us free and call us into lives of hope and redemption and grace and then how he has also sent us on that same mission, that we are a people who get to walk around and, and restore relationships like God restored a relationship with us. There's an offering box in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he's doing in our lives. Uh, saw some cookies in the back. Grab something to eat with the cookies. Talk to some other people about maybe some of the, the questions, like where is it hard for you in your life to say to somebody, okay, your sins against me are forgiven? Where is it hard for you to do that? And then maybe you and somebody else can talk a little bit deeper into understanding Christ's forgiveness of you. And how all the sins that someone else has committed has also been forgiven by Jesus. That when we want other people to hurt so bad because of some slight that they have done against us and we want to crucify them, Jesus already was crucified for them. And so this gives us opportunity to restore relationship again. Uh, as I get, and, and as I keep saying, there is food in the back, but don't eat it all. Come to baptisms. The sun is coming out. Look at that. Right in the sea. Come, hang out, celebrate these people. We're going to give you guys tri-tip and bread. You won't poop for a week. It'll be amazing. (laughs) You know how it is. The older you get. So come hang out together and and celebrate with one another. Celebrate. In in baptism, you get to celebrate the goodness of, of Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. It's a representation of that, and it is beautiful. And we get to live in great joy because of what he has done, because our God is that good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, teach us what it means to understand that you have forgiven us, that we would take it to heart, and we would understand the depth of what it cost you to rescue and save all of us knuckleheads. And yet, we wouldn't be stuck in a place of despair because you don't leave us there. You call us to a place of hope. You call us to be a people who live with a much deeper understanding of your rescue of us so that we would begin to share that with everybody else. And when people have these lives that are broken into pieces and they think there is no way for relationships to ever be restored and no way their sins can be forgiven if they even use the word sin, that we could always point them to you. Because you are the one who saves us. And you are the one who has sought us and done all that we needed to heal us. So teach us to live in that healing and that grace. That we have been restored to life that we have been restored to hope because of what you have done. 
Teach us to be those who go out and live on your mission to this world, being sent to explain and live that in everybody's lives we come into contact with. Because you have set us to be a people who understand that you are the only God. And you have saved and brought us into relationship. So teach us to live in that relationship. Loving you, loving others, and honoring you in all things. We ask this in your son's gracious and very good name. Amen.